Hey folks, this is Jeff Benjamin with The Investment News Podcast. This week we have a co-host sitting in for Bruce Kelly because Bruce is on uh, vacation or fishing or something like that. We have our uh, technology reporter, Nicole Casperson. How you doing, Nicole? Doing very well. Thank you, Jeff, for, for having me co-host. I No one could take Bruce's iconic place, but I am happy to fill in and add my own Nikki spin to it. Okay, enough of the buttering up of Bruce. He's probably not even going to listen to this. So, <laughs> all right. We have a couple of great guests today. First, we have uh, Mike Willis, the founder and portfolio manager at Index Funds. He's going to tell us all about the magic of equal weighted indexes. And then we're going to talk to Shannon McClay, the founder of the Financial Gym, which is going to be, I'm predicting, an incredibly disruptive force in the traditional financial planning space. But first of all, Mike, Mike Willis, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Nicole. Great to be here from sunny, sunny Honolulu. Sunny oh, wow. Honolulu. Okay, that's enough. Enough <laughs> of the bragging. All right. Uh, we're bragging on the show today. <laughs> Yeah. We moved. We moved the office here three years ago because uh, Wall Street's no longer in New York City, as you know. It jumped the wire. It went onto the internet. It's all digital now, so you really don't have to be one block away from the NYSC anymore. So why not Hawaii? Yes, exactly. And my thoughts exactly. I uh, am based in Jacksonville, North Carolina, so that's where I want to be right now. I really missed the memo because I still live uh, by Wall Street. So maybe one day <laughs> I'll make it over uh, out of here. All right. All right. So, Mike, I wrote about this a little bit ago, a couple of weeks ago, your equal weighted index of the S&P 500, which most people know the, the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. We're going to have you walk us through all that. I kind of describe it as the magic of equal weighting because it is magic at least this year and in as cycles go your your fund which has the the appropriate index uh the appropriate ticker symbol index index is up 11.26 percent year to date compared to the s p 500 which i think is up 6.35 year to date so how how does this happen talk talk to us about the differences between cap weighting and and equal weighting you bet. You bet. It's the same 500 companies just equally weighted. And, and when you talk to most people about the S&P 500, even though they know it's market cap, you'd be surprised when you really drill down on what they think that means. Very few of them understand how top-weighted a market cap S&P 500 index is. And most actually think when we describe to them what the S&P 500 formula is and how that portfolio is put together, it's more like what they, they thought they were invested in in the first place. For example, right now, the top five holdings in the S&P 500 market cap index are the same weighting as the bottom 340 holdings. And when you tell someone that, they, they scratch their head a little bit. And they say, I, I didn't realize, I knew it was top weighted, but I didn't know it was quite that top weighted. So what the S&P 500 equal weight does, first of all, many people don't know there are two S&P 500 index funds. It's interesting because there's 3 trillion plus products in the S&P 500 market cap, and there is about 30 billion in the S&P 500 equal weight 
at this point. So it's a really an untapped market. And for advisors, I mentioned that because if you want to differentiate yourself, this is this is a clear differentiator because the long-term performance actually favors the equal weight over the market cap since its inception. We can walk through that in a minute. But essentially what happens is on a quarterly basis, we take the 500 companies in the portfolio and we rebalance the portfolio. And that's where your equal weight comes into play. But during the quarter, it's completely out of whack. So what you need to understand is it's only equal weighted four days out of the year. The in-between time, we let the horses run. So the winners have time to run during the quarter. If we rebalanced on a daily basis, it would be crazy fees, but also you would cut the winners off. So that's just a kind of an opening on how the S&P 500 equal weight works. Mm -hmm. Why don't more advisors embrace equal weight? I mean, I know there's only three equal weighted indexes out there of the S&P, but I, I don't really understand why people don't see this as a as a pretty solid diversifier of a really top heavy index. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what happened is when the S&P 500 hit the market and Jack Bogle put it out there 25 years ago, you everything was equal weighted. Or sorry, everything was market cap driven. And so nobody really questioned the market cap model. And as index funds, more and more index funds came to bear, they all kind of followed suit to that. And, and when the biggest players, the, you know, the giant five, you have BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Fidelity, and Vesco pretty much dominate the S&P 500 index space, the other mutual fund companies decided to go to other, track other indexes. And initially, they just, they just chose the market cap because that's what the, the market does. And, and really, that's a trend in society, right? People do what other people do. And, and it takes a while for the breakouts to happen. But it's very interesting to me. There's only three S&P 500 equal weight products on the market right now. Two are held by Invesco because the ETF they bought from Guggenheim two years ago. So we used to have three of us, Guggenheim, Invesco, and index funds. Now it's just in Invesco and index funds. So if you're not happy at Invesco, we offer an alternative. But you're right. It's just $30 billion, It's a $30 billion space right now. It really should be $500 billion. I mean, because from a core equity holding position, which is where most people position their S&P 500 allocations in their model, model asset allocated portfolios, they're a core holding. You need diversification, in my opinion. So to spread it out among the 500, we think is smart. Mm -hmm. Nicole, do you have a question for Mike? Yeah, I do. Mike, could you tell us more about why most indexes are market cap weighted? Well, we talked to Jack Bogle about that. We were in his office two years ago, right before he died, but he was writing the article, his last op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, regarding the fact that the index fund industry was dominated by three players and how that was an issue with proxy voting in the future when index funds may hold 51% of all stocks and three companies that basically have effective voting control over all publicly traded companies. And he was concerned about that. But we, we showed him our, our equal weight and he said, ah, the zero weight. And he said, you know, we never really tested the zero weight and he said the market cap, when they introduced it, they were scared at the time from a liquidity standpoint that if they zero-weighted the portfolio, 
that the smaller of the 500 holdings wouldn't have enough volume, enough shares outstanding to handle it. And so by default, he said, we never even tested the equal weight because we didn't think we could put it into the market if we, it would scale. Now that we have the volume in the market, the EcoWeight has proven it can scale. And so that, that's, the, that's the reason it, they went with the market cap originally. Hmm. And now that you've proven the scale, are there any plans to offer equal weighted versions of any other indexes? Okay. Well, th- th- this is a great question for us. We are S&P 500 fanatics and an index is our flagship fund. So our goal is to get a couple billion dollars into index first and, and then look at rolling out fund two, fund three, fund four. So from our standpoint, we do like equal weight across the board, but we are particularly par- partial to the S&P 500. And, and let me just interject a bigger, a, a more of a macro comment here, because there's something much bigger going on here. And we think it's a tipping point. Because in the last year, M1 money supply just went from $6 trillion to $18 trillion. Now, you got to let that s- set in. This is the biggest devaluation in the history of the market. And very few advisors even are aware of this. And so they think the market's up 50% off the bottom 12 months ago today. But I would argue that the US dollar just devalued by 50%. And what that does, regardless of how much the devaluation actually was, that means effectively, if you're going to keep up with asset inflation, and, and you got to ignore the CPI, the CPI is a manipulated number. Look at asset inflation. Talk to your friends who are buying houses right now. They're selling on the first day. Talk to your friends that are trying to get into rentals. They're renting out in the first day. Trash is cash right now. And, and for advisors, that means bonds are out. You can't, 4% is not going to keep you up. If you, if you loaded up the long bond, you're getting 4%. That is not going to get you asset protection for your, your clients. It also means the 60-40 strategy out is out. That's only made 7% over the last 10 years annualized. And most asset allocation models for the same reason, only getting 4 to 8% over the last 10 years, won't keep up with that type of asset inflation. So the S&P 500 index at plus 14% annualized for the last 10 years and 15 to 16% over the last five is your best shot. In fact, it, we would argue it's your only mainstream strategy on Wall Street right now, or at least one of the best, that gives you a shot at staying up with that type of asset inflation. Because your next step would be the Qs, the QQQs, and who's going to put 100% you know, a core holding in all tech. Next step above that is Bitcoin, way too volatile. So really, the S&P 500 index we think is going to have a, a massive shift into it as advisors realize their portfolios aren't going to keep their clients up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, to be clear, you're not recommending that people should completely move out of the cap-weighted version and move into equal-weighted, even though that would help you, your business. Uh, sounds like no, diversification would be a better right, strategy, right? We, right? Exactly. We would say that Put 50% into each because, the, for example, the last four years, the market cap trounced the equal weight. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to its inception 18 years ago, the equal weight beats the, the market cap. 
And the interesting thing is, four out of the last five years, the market cap won this battle between the two S&P 500 indexes. But the previous five years, four out of the last five years, the equal weight won that battle. And the key is the equal weight does really well after crashes. The two years after crashes, the last two major crashes, 08, the financial collapse of 08. And then if you go back to the dot-com crash, those are the two biggest crashes in the last 20 mm-hmm. years. The equal weight really off the bottom, soundly outperformed over the following two years over the market cap. So if you take going back, you said year to date, Jeff, that we were up 11%, the equal weight's up 11% and, and the market cap's up six. That's that's a solid number. If you go back to the bottom 12, exactly 12 months ago yesterday, there's a 14% gap off the bottom. The equal weight's up 70%, whereas the market cap's only up 56%. Why does equal weight do so well off the bottom like that? Well, the argument is they fall, they fall more during, during the downside, which, which is true. If you, if you go back to to the crash of 2008, the equal weight was down basically 40%, And the market cap was only down 37%. The following year, the market cap was up 26% and the equal weight was up 46%. There's a big jump off the bottom. So even though it does go down more, the equal weight, there's more volatility on the downside because obviously there's when you get down to the bottom half of the S&P 500 those are smaller companies they're still the largest companies on Wall Street but they're smaller than than these mega caps that are at the top so there's less there's going to be less volatility on the downside but they tend to do very well off the bottom jeff okay what kind of pushback do you get mike when you try and talk to financial advisors or, or other investors about this idea are people just ingrained in market cap weighted indexes yeah, they, they just don't know about it. And a, a lot of advisors think they have to stay away from the S&P 500 because they want to add value to clients. They don't want to show them, you know, S&P 500 is their core holding. But we think because then maybe they're scared. I remember being an advisor myself being scared that, hey, if they think I'm just putting it in the S&P 500, they'll go out and, and do the same thing and say, why am I paying for this advice? But the EcoWeight is... Um, is interesting because it shows you've done your due diligence. Most advisors don't know about it. That's why there's only $30 billion in it. But once they find out about it, they're very open to it. So then it comes down to the fact that Invesco's product's been out for 15 plus years. We just got our five-year track record, which by the way, we slightly outperformed Invesco during those five years. So we're, we're happy about that. But what we really wanted to do was offer investors, offer financial advisors an alternative S&P 500 option to these, the, these top institutions, these five, the gang of five that dominate the index fund space. And so we really wanted to come up with a, an advisor-friendly, a retail-friendly, more of a people's index fund because we want to decentralize that proxy voting process. Okay, well... That's good stuff. And, and just to let you know, we were going to try and get Invesco to sponsor this webcast, but apparently that's not going to happen now. But uh, well, maybe next time. <laughs> if, I say, if I say Invesco three times in a row, maybe they'll come and sponsor us. Um, they, one other thing I want to ask you, Mike, is the, this is another thing I think a lot of people that are casual observers might not understand. 
the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that's a price weighted index. Yes. How, how does that how is that put together? I don't want to speak out of turn here. I mean, it's very similar to the market cap, but it's just it's based on the price. It's price weighted. But it, it in terms of EcoWeight versus the Dow, I can tell you it's very similar to the market cap. But the, the difference, you've pointed out a distinction that I can't rattle it off off the top of my head for you, okay. Jeff, the, the precise difference between the, the price weighted. Because when you look at, if you look at a pie chart of the Dow, it's similar to the to the market cap version, uh, but the price weighting goes all the way back to the beginning in the Dow days, and that's how mm-hmm. they did it back then because there weren't a lot of splits back then. And I don't know why it hasn't changed. It's it's actually interesting that that formula is still a price weighted. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I'm think sorry, I didn't have a better answer for you no, on that. that one. That's that's okay. I, I didn't mean to throw you a curveball, but uh, I, it's the first time you haven't had an answer to something I've asked you, so I'm going to write that down <laughs> in my diary. Um, Jeff always throws curveballs. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what this whole podcast is about. We try and rattle people. Um, <laughs> but uh, Mike, I mean, really good stuff. I mean, it it is interesting to to you know, a lot of people look at indexes and they could just assume that they're all the same, and there are so many different ways to to skin a cat. No offense, Nicole. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, that's that's what we're learning here today. And I, you know, uh, I, I don't know if Nicole has any other questions. I think actually the, there is something I was checking out your uh, your website and your super fun video on it, explaining all that you do and kind of your aha moments with this. I and I wanted to I wanted to ask about it, about that aha moment where you learned that all investors needed to know was the word index. And then you decided to like create this. Tell us more about that moment. Yeah, you bet. I had spent uh, that year, it was 2013. And that was the year the S&P 500 did 32%. We did about 14% for our clients. That year, I had a family office. That year, Buffett did about 18% for his portfolio. And we both got soundly beaten by the S&P 500. And for me, it was a a big aha moment because I had spent thousands of hours. I actually, one of my biggest portfolios, I went through all the holdings and we actually had 10,000 holdings when you map the whole portfolio out. And I realized that, wow, all I had to do was own the S&P 500 this year, put very little time and, and effort into the portfolio compared to what I had. And I would have doubled the performance for my clients because that's the the worst thing as an advisor when you have your quarterly reviews or your annual reviews and and they ask the dreaded question, well, did we beat the S and P five hundred? And you say, well, no, but I have you much more diversified than that. You know, I have you in bonds, and the S and P five hundred doesn't have bonds. And you you work through your little sheet on how and why you didn't beat the S and P five hundred that you're better diversified. And what I finally realized was. Owning the top 500 companies in America is pretty damn diversified. And it, we couldn't say that when I worked for the major wirehouses because, heaven forbid, if you just own the SP 500, my God, that was, that was too, far too concentrated. But I think the times have changed now. And I think people are actually over-diversified. They have too many positions in their portfolio. And, and they're adding too much complexity to it and not focusing on the things that really matter. And so for and, and it's interesting because the reason I, I mentioned Buffett is because right after that, Buffett just went 
ballistic for the S&P 500. And I, I think he was muzzled during that annual report because that was the first year in 40 years Buffett didn't beat the S&P 500 on a trailing five-year basis. And the, their attorneys had to manipulate the annual report numbers to six, a six-year trailing 12. And that's how he beat it. He didn't say anything about it. And he normally leads with that. And I think he couldn't, he couldn't talk. But once he got out of the... And you can, you can check it out. Go, go to the, the annual report for the 2013 year for, for Berkshire Hathaway. And you'll see what I'm saying. Because all of us portfolio managers were watching because we knew that this was... He, he would say, if I can't beat the S&P 500, then, then, then fire me. I shouldn't be paid. And so when that aha moment hit us, Nicole, we knew we had to change. We had already felt the pressure from index funds across the board, like all advisors. And we finally realized we were going to have to embrace this shift and go with it. And we went out and we got the index funds. We chartered an investment company out of Delaware, named it Index Funds. We couldn't believe we got that name. And then even better, we got the index, we acquired the index ticker symbol. And so we had the ability to track any index on Wall Street. And we decided it was the S&P 500. And because we wanted to pitch it as a core portfolio holding, we knew it had to be an equal weight because we just didn't want that much weight in those super cap companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right, Mike. On that note, we're going to have to wrap it up. Good stuff. Mike Willis, Index Funds on the Magic of Equal Weighting. Check it out, folks. It seems like there's a good cycle starting there. At least that's uh, according to the stuff that I've been following. But uh, thank you very much, Mike. You bet. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, good stuff. Now we have Shannon McClay, founder of The Financial Gym, with us to talk to us about this, uh, what I consider to be kind of a disruptive force in the financial planning industry. We're going to have Shannon talk to us all about that. Shannon, how you doing? Thank you for being here. I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it uh, it was great talking to you the other week, and uh, I wanted to bring you on here, get a little bit more into depth and uh, into what you're doing there at the financial gym. Maybe you can start by kind of introducing the concept and tell us uh, how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, what the heck are we? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. What is this financial? I, I love weights when I'm there. Right. I love you. Like, what am I doing there? You know, what what do you do when you go to a financial gym? I'm like, pretty much our workout equipment is wine and Kleenex. Um, so, you know, we're talking about money and financial planning. So, but backtrack before that, I I tell people all the time that, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and founder, but never wanted to start a business. And here I am eight years later as uh running this business. And I used to tell people I had a 13-year career in financial services, working on trading floors and for investment banks. And I tell people all the time, I'm not changing the world. I'm just making money. And then I shifted into my 30s. And I remember getting life coached. And my life coach was like, what's your purpose in life? And I was like, well, just making money doesn't seem like a great purpose. But that's what I'd been saying up until that point. And I just kind of went on this journey. And I was working for... B of A Merrill at the time they had merged as post the called it the shotgun wedding of 2008, 2009, uh, the B of A <laughs> Merrill merger. And, and I was working with Merrill Lynch financial advisors and from the bank of America side. And it was, and I was around that time in my early thirties feeling like I needed a financial advisor. And I thought, this is so great. I am working with all these advisors. I can 
pretty much pick the one I want. And I tell people in the process of looking for myself, I became woke to the financial advisory space, realizing that 85% are men. And I always say there's nothing wrong with that. I married a man. I birthed a man. <laughs> I, I love men. I am a male lover. But it just felt really unfair because money's so personal. And I said, it just, it was felt really unfair that it's hard to find anything different. And so I thought if you can't beat them, join them. So I became a Merrill advisor and to work with me at Merrill, you had to have 250,000 in assets. And I didn't think anything of that at the time I had had, I had more than that in my 401k. I had been working around money and I thought this is going to be really easy for me to uh, find these clients. And I was finding them. And I, I laugh all the time thinking about how my business now would never exist, never would have existed if I took the advice of my my mentor at Merrill. And I always say mentor with air quotes because I didn't really take a lot of his advice. And one of the things he said was pre-screen all your calls, make sure they have money before you even meet with them because they won't even count as a new household unless they have 250000 in assets. And I just remember thinking that's ridiculous. I can't imagine asking somebody how much is in their bank account before we have coffee. It just felt really unsettling. So I just took every meeting. So I had people who'd reach out and say, hey, I need a financial planner. Can we meet? I'm like, sure, let's grab coffee. Let's chat. And uh, one of those first meetings was uh, a woman who said, I have 250000 of student loan debt and I make $50,000 a year and not the six-figure law career my, you know, my law school, private law school told me I would have. And I remember just sitting there the whole time thinking, I don't even know how to help this woman, but I want to help her. And at the end of it, she said, I just feel unlovable. Who would want to marry me with all this debt? (laughs) And uh, I did think to myself, and I kept it to myself, but I was like, you're right. (laughs) Who would want to marry you with all that debt? That is a a big ask of somebody. (laughs) Um, We call it now at the gym, we call it your STD, sexually transmitted debt, is student loan debt. That's yeah, and there's not there's not any kind of anti anti you know uh, vaccine for it, so it sucks. But yeah, so I just started helping people on the side. I tell people I became the worst financial advisor ever because I loved my pro bono clients more than my high net worth clients, and I did that for a few months, and then I had my aha week of my life, and it started with a couple that had over a million dollars with me and we were doing a quarterly review and their portfolio was down 3%. And they're just kind of complaining about where their money was. It was like, it was the end of the world. You know, how are the kids going to go to college and how are we going to afford this or that? And I remember, you know, I spent an hour of my life making them feel better about being a little less rich. And it was just really soul sucking. And then I got, I thought, I guess this is what I signed up for, but it doesn't feel really good. And then two days later, had a meeting with a pro bono client gave her a plan just like we do at the gym, just bulleted, you know, here's how how much you need to save. Here's how you handle student loan debt. Here's what you do with the credit cards. And at the end of the meeting, she said, you know, you're saving my life, right? And I was like, ah, like this feels so much better than that other meeting. And it was like, literally it all came to me at once. I was like, "I I have to do something. And I was on this weight loss journey too, at the same time. And I remember thinking when I want when I wanted to get physically healthy, there's so many places to go to get physically healthy. But if people want to get financially healthy, where would they go? And I thought you would go to a financial gym to get financially healthy. And it all came to me like literally like like a lightning bolt. I was like, it's like H&R Block, but fun and cool. And advisors are trainers and they wear jeans and T-shirts and people pay a monthly membership fee just like a regular gym, just like a regular gym. Anyone can work out there. 
And that was eight years ago. And it's been a long journey <laughs> to get to this point. But uh, I knew nothing about starting a business, nothing about raising money. None of it. I, you know, now I, they just had a report in, uh, they just released for Women's History Month, this report on the fintech space because Financial Gym is considered a fintech startup. And only 3% of fintech mm-hmm. companies are female founded. 3%. It's just, mm-hmm. the, at, and then we, and we receive less than 1% of the financing funding. So 97% of my peers are men, which I, every every time I think I'm in, uh, like I started on a trading floor when I was 22 and that was a male dominated industry. Then the, the, you know, being a financial advisor, that was male dominated. Now as an entrepreneur, like it just keeps getting worse. The numbers keep getting worse, but I keep going and pushing through. So that's the gym. That's amazing. Uh, I will say, Shannon, we have a couple of things in common. One, I'm also used to uh, continuing on in my career and mostly being surrounded by men. And the other thing is, I also, uh, Jeff Benjamin is supposed to be my mentor, and but I don't really listen to him very much either. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple things in common then. Yes. <laughs> well, I too am surrounded by men and I'm a man, so I'm the worst of all worlds. So. But uh, anyway, Nicole, you got a question for Shannon? Yeah. So I, really interesting. I love the concept. A couple questions. So In the piece that Jeff wrote about Financial Gym, you said, and I will quote, the financial services industry should be called the financial products industry because the only way they make money is by selling you a product. Meanwhile, 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and the financial services industry wants to give you an app to use. So uh, given my role as the fintech reporter, I, I also write about technology. You know, I'm constantly reporting on how these apps out there are trying to help more people understand and control their finances. So I'd love to hear you expand on, you know, why what you're doing at Financial Gym is so much more impactful to someone than say the fintech app that someone uses, you know, on their iPhone the same way they scroll through Instagram. Yeah, I mean, Nicole, you write about this for a living, so you know there's plenty of apps out there, right? And they all have a lot of claims. And I didn't go on this journey 8 years ago with a, an app in my mind. It was a, a place and a space and I thought you know, their H&R Block is a multi-billion dollar business. Like people do go into those locations and want to speak to a human being. And I was like, there's a, there's a place here for this. And so, you know, kind of like, hey, there's, you know, TurboTax for that person. And then, you know, we're just going to be the other type of person. And in the eight years of helping people get financially healthy, I can tell you, it, it is hard for people to just use an app because one of the lessons I've learned is that money is very emotional and people don't feel highly confident. There's only two in 10 women feel highly confident with their financial decisions. So if you're not feeling highly confident going in, you know, and the other backstory to all of this is the lack of financial education. So you want to tell somebody to DIY their financial life, but they have no idea what that means because we're not getting an education in financial literacy in our schools. We're not getting it at home. We're not getting it on the job. And now you're saying, hey, here's an app, figure it out. Uh, people don't even know where they're starting from to even know how to utilize the app. We hear all the time at the gym. This is my favorite line. I've heard it more than once. Mint.com is judging me. <laughs> I'm like, uh, Mint.com's not judging you. It's just an app. Well, it tells me I go out too much. I'm like, well, you probably do eat out too much. It's like, that's just numbers. Like it's just a number, but you know, the, and the issue there is because this person probably thought that they spend $500 a month on dining out, let's just say, 
But what Mint is showing this person is that they're spending $800 a month. And it's probably the reality. But this person didn't know what the reality is. We just had a trainer call a, a few days ago. And we were all laughing how we love when we first sit down with people. And we're like, how much do you think you're spending on, you know, variable? Like, how much do you think you spend on food a month and this or that? And, you know, we love people's first guests, you know, because it's like, Oh, maybe like $200 a month. We're like, okay, right. Yeah. And then we start tracking it. And we love when we meet three months later, we're like, hey, remember how you thought you were spending this? You're really spending this. Most people don't even know where their money's going. So they don't really have a good idea of how to even manage it. I, we also, that's another thing we hear all the time. I don't know where my money's going. I know I'm making it. I don't know where it's going. And I, I say there's plenty of apps to tell you where it's going. But if you feel like the apps are judging you, you're just going to delete them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that what you're hitting on, I love this like concept of bringing um, positivity and a physical space to like a gym, right? And the, to financial services and personal finance, because, you know, when you're picking out a gym and you're going and checking out all these spaces, it's a similar concept, right? You're, you're wondering if the people that work there judge you and you're going to pick the place that maybe is a bit more comfortable and I mean, I think that it was, it leads to another point that I did want to make, Shannon, which in a lot of the reporting I do covering fintech, the big issue people have with these apps and well, let's just say the big issue people have with Robinhood is that it's addicting, right? And it's addicting for young people to get into trading or whatever and bad finance habits. But when people are addicted to say fitness or their gym, it's positive. So I think that there's like an interesting, what you've created, right? Is like an interesting dynamic where you're bringing like the positivity of being addicted to your health to yeah. finance. And that's very cool. Yeah. My favorite is, so over the last eight years, our number one source of new clients is referrals. 48% of our business comes from referrals and word of mouth. And I always love hearing our clients say, they're like, I think my friends think I'm part of a cult because I'm like, <laughs> hey, you got to join the financial gym. Like you've got to join the financial gym. And people are like, what? did you get yourself signed up for? It sounds like a cult, but it's cult-like in that people are getting really positive financial results. Just like why people are really excited about going to CrossFit or SoulCycle class or Peloton because they're getting results and they're feeling good. We have the same reaction, but with money. Shannon, let me ask you, let's go over a little bit of the the, the demographics here. I, I know that you and I talked about this. I, I kind of know what your answers are going to be, but I, I I know that you're you're not necessarily marketing to women, but you have a lot of uh, women clients, right? Mm -hmm. Female yeah. clients. Mm -hmm. What break that down for me? Yeah. I so Nicole, I told Jeff, I was like, you're not our target demo. You're, you're <laughs> an old boomer. I'm the target demo. I'm a young female millennial. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it took Jeff about a, what was it? A 45 minutes of the conversation to really get what we were doing. <laughs> but then you were getting it, Jeff. I was proud of you. You finally were like, oh, okay, I'm finally getting this thing, which is okay because you're you know, you are not our initial target demo, although we say we are cult like at the gym. We feel like everybody should be a part of our gym because just like you have fit people working out in a regular gym leveling up, we, you know, have the same financially. And then there's people who are, you know, in a different journey. We have all of those types at the gym. But yeah, we do predominantly uh, appeal to women. And I love how on investment news, you, you, of all the quotes, the one that you highlighted that I said was men don't stop and ask for directions, but their girlfriends, <laughs> wives and sisters and moms do. Um, 
it is some of that. I think that it, you see it frequently. Women, you know, we are the, the businesses around, you know, financial training and helping you understand money better. And I think women are just more naturally apt to say, I need help than men in a lot of areas. And so that's kind of, that's what we're selling is we're helping you level up your money. And so we just know we naturally appeal to the female mm-hmm. demographic, but 65% of our client base is women and 35% are men. And, you know, again, we joke at the gym when, you know, the, if a wife or girlfriend or fiance signs up for the, you know, as a couple meeting, we always love the first meeting. The guy's like, what did she sign me up for? What is this? (laughs) And then we, you know, then we start doing the plan and the work and they're like, oh, wait, you're going to help her stop spending money on shoes. And she's going to be excited about investing. I've been trying to mansplain investing to her for a while. And, and, you know, we're going to be on the same page and goal setting, like all these things. And then we, we joke at the trainers at the gym. We're like, oh, we converted another guy. Like he gets it. And the funny story too, is the client number three of the gym, it was the boyfriend of client number two. They are now married and just had their second child, but, and they're both still clients of mine. And they actually just invested in our, we were doing a small internal round and they just invested. And his wife emailed me. She's like, can you believe it? We finally got Tim on board. Like he actually wanted to invest in the business. I was like, yeah, eight years later, he's a big so it's fan. So it's a matchmaking site also, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we, you know, so we have a number of, of single female clients, right? And we are getting them financially healthy and doing all the things. We say we hate when they meet somebody and he's not financially healthy for like, we did all this work. And I just had a, I just had a meeting with a couple clients. She's been a client for a long time and now she's engaged and we just had their first meeting together. And she's really frugal minded. He's even more frugal minded than her. And I was like, oh, this makes me so happy, you guys. Like, this is going to be great. Let's, Shannon, let's get down a little bit of the nuts and bolts. How, how does it actually work? I mean, you, you, you pay a subscription monthly, quarterly, Mm -hmm. um, and what, what do you get? How does the whole process work? If, if me or Nicole kind of walk in your doors, either physically or virtually? (laughs) The the (laughs) process starts with a free, we call it the workout warm-up call. And our warm-up callers are our clients. Actually, they work, you know, it's their part-time jobs, how they can hustle, side hustle and make more money. And so you're talking to somebody who's already in the program and you can ask and they just want to find out more about you. Like, where are you in your financial journey? Are you looking for budgeting or, you know, are you paying off debt? What kind of state are you in? And, you know, explain the gym to you. And then from that point on, it is not they're not incented to sell anything. We just we know money's really personal. We know that we want to have a relationship with you. So we're not going to force you into it. But if you're ready to go from there, they'll, we'll talk about what kind of trainer you want to work with. They'll pair you with a financial trainer and then set you up with your first session. We call the first session, your financially naked session. And it's, it's tongue in cheek, but we, we call it that because we know that money is the ultimate taboo topic. We know that people are more comfortable getting physically naked with another person than financially naked. And we know that in that first meeting, we're going to ask you to tell us all your financial dirty laundry. And, you know, we want you to feel comfortable knowing that we know that is an emotional thing. The trainers have uh, like a bingo cards, you know, that like they've created and there's a box on the bingo card that client cried in the first meeting. And everybody gets that, that card, that bingo <laughs> spot filled within 30 days. They joke and like within 30 days of starting here, you will get somebody who will cry in the first meeting because <laughs> for a lot of different, we've had clients cry because they're, you know, they're 
upset with their financial situation. We've had clients cry because they're happy because they're finally, you know, they're optimistic about their money. I mean, we, we joke about the wine and Kleenex, but we do go through a lot of both when we're talking about money. So then you have your, you get your session. Then a week later, you get your plan. And our plans are literally game changing. I've seen financial planning software. I've been in the industry for nine years now. Our software is game changing because we're not only going to tell you how much you need to save. We're going to address student loans. We're going to address credit cards and credit building. But we're also going to tell you how much you need to make. So you're going to tell us all the goals you want in life. We're going to tell you how much you should make. We're going to talk about topics like financial independence instead of just retirement planning. And it's really game changing. And so you get that plan in a week and then it's then it's off to the races. We have a you put all your information in a site that's like mint.com. We have we call it trading zone. And then we start tracking your your activity from that point on. And then you have regular check-ins with your trainer, formal quarterly reviews where we review progress to date, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Nice. And, and um, in the the fees, most financial advisors, as you know, charge an asset based fee, and you're charging a like a subscription fee, right? Yes. Monthly. Yes, monthly subscription fees. For, we have a individual rate, couples rate, and then we have business owners rate. What What do you do? You feel like this is is potentially uh, maybe direct competition to a lot of those financial advisors. Maybe not the ones looking for two hundred fifty thousand dollar minimums. But the financial advice industry is kind of gradually waking up to the idea that that people without a lot of money are still potential clients. And I think something like the financial gym could kind of push them to look that way a little more seriously. Do you feel that? Do you oh, yeah. sense that at all? Oh, yeah. When I left. So when I was at Merrill and, and this was an issue back 10 years ago, it's still an issue is this concern about the wealth transfer, the boomers going to the, mm-hmm. their millennial Gen X clients and also me- the men to women. Like they're very concerned about the transfer of wealth and what's going to happen to the space when they do. And I, I remember working with guys who would complain about having to work with their clients' kids, you know, because they're like, oh, I got, uh, they want me to talk to the kid, but like, you know, then the parents mm-hmm. had money with them and they like hated talking to the kids. And I remember when I left, I was like, I'll take the kids. Like, I'm happy to talk to kids. Like, my business is going to address the kids. But I've always said, I was like, I feel like every advisor should partner with us because we don't sell products. We do have clients who have financial advisors as well as us. They, you know, we're the ones explaining. (laughs) We call it gym-splaining. Instead of mansplaining, it's gym-splaining to them. (laughs) Like, we gym-splain what's in their statements and what the advisor's doing. and, And we're kind of the liaison for that. But we're happy to partner with them. And I said, our client, your clients are going to have more money because we're going to help them have more money. They're going to get more comfortable with more investing because we're going to help them educate them more. And, you know, we're going to help them budget and they're going to have be in better shape. And, you know, we're happy to partner with them. Unfortunately, a very large part of the financial advising industry, there's a lot of fiefdom building and, you know, there's a lot of anxiety about sharing relationships. And I I saw that when I was at Merrill, I was like, you know what, if you're doing such a great job with this client, then I shouldn't be a risk that they're going to move to me, right? You should always be doing a great job for your clients so that they'll never want to leave you. You know, so we shouldn't be a risk, but I do see us as partnering and we're always open to partnering. What about the, uh, the training of your trainers? I mean, we look across the financial services industry and there's, it's credential 
mania. CFA, How many push-ups push do I got to do to be yeah. a personal trainer at the yeah. financial gym? Yeah, it's not push-ups. It's how many glasses <laughs> of wine can you chug in a second? <laughs> Um, there's a chug test yeah you know it's really interesting I did all the licensing exams I did everything like that and I very little of that actually impacted the day-to-day client work they're so legal eased and you had to learn so much information that actually didn't apply to what you were doing it was almost frustrating that you spent that much time so you know you can pass the test but what is the actual knowledge and what are you actually teaching and I think so much, unfortunately, too, I see this is you, you get taught certain things in the advisory program. And I actually do think the Merrill Lynch advisory program was a good, the trainer advisory program was a good one. I learned a lot there, but I just didn't end up ha- applying a lot of that in my job because most people's challenge, especially when you want to work with a financial advisor or financial planner, is um, it's really, you know, explaining topics to you and, and helping them understand. and then. Being that sounding board for their financial decisions, that's not stuff that I got taught in the Merrill training program. It's stuff I know as being a human being. And it's stuff, though, that we do teach our trainers about how to see clients for where they are, pick up on cues, understand like why they might be anxious or struggling with their financial situation. How do you make them more comfortable? And then also, yes, all the things. What's an ETF? What is like, you know, whole life? insurance versus term life insurance. We get into all that stuff. But, you know, most of what we see and hear is not a lot of money related ideas. I mean, well, what what about the um, I mean, we, you joke about the mostly women and, and younger women, but I know you have a cross section of people there. Do, do you feel like I'm talking clients? Do you feel like that the financial gym is a replacement or direct competitor to a financial advisor? Or is it a kind of a stepping stone toward... I feel like it's complimentary. I feel like we have... uh, This is the other thing I saw. Most advisors want to do the investing and maybe, you know, the the estate planning, some bigger things. We, they don't want to help with budgeting and, uh, you know, looking at how much did you spend on, you know, Seamless this last month? And do we have a shopping problem we have to talk about? Or you know, goal setting with couples, they, they don't want to go there and somebody mm-hmm. should go there with, the, with their clients because the clients want to go there and have those kind of conversations. And I've always, we, we were talking to a very large financial institution about a possible acquisition and then it got like detoured, but that was the value proposition was like, Hey, we're, we're just part of the team. A lot of times at that Merrill, they talked about the advisor being the quarterback and you know, the, the mortgage person, the banker is being, you know, the wide receiver, like they had their team and we would just be a part of the team, the kicker. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> whatever. Something I don't know cool. all the football things, you know, there's always a, there's <laughs> always a sports analogy, of course, but, um, <laughs> so I, we, I, I've said we should be on every financial advisory team. We should be the trainer because I, I've been asked, I've been asked for us to do more for the high net worth people. Um, and we've kind of just shied away from that market because it's always gets like wound up in investing and we don't do the investing part of it. So it is right. it, it is an opportunity. And and a people spend making who have one of my recent clients, they have 40 million in assets. Why they wanted to work and five advisors, different advice, so money with each of, of the five advisors. They wanted to work with me because they didn't know if they were going to run out of money. 
and they're a $40 million. I always say the problems are the same. The zeros are different. Uh, now you have, uh, you're based in New York, Manhattan. Uh, you have an, uh, uh, I guess a gym in gym. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Washington, DC and Los Angeles. And, and I know that you have a, a strong virtual kind of footprint. Talk to us about how that virtual footprint was, was kind of benefited from the, the lockdowns and all the virtual stuff that people have been doing. Yeah, we've worked with clients virtually since day one. Part of the initial early days of the growth with, of the gym came from the podcast that I have, Mar- Martinis and Your Money, Living a Better Life, One Cocktail at a Time. And uh, people would hear that and you know from around the country and want to join the gym. So we've been working with clients virtually for years now. But, you know, there is the trust factor and people do like coming into the space and in the past and they've come into a sp- the space and event marketing is very big for us pre-2020. And, um, and so what, what's great and, and people would say, I'll just wait for a gym or, you know, I'll wait. And we're like, well, you could work with us virtually. They're like I'll wait. And th- what we've benefited is that this last year has normalized zoom and, you know, virtual meetings. So it's no- normalized now and, and having a lot of different connections. We're meeting with our doctors this way. We're meeting with family this way. So it has been easier for us. We also used to have challenges in the spaces of prime time, kind of similar to other gyms where, you know, after work, we'd be very busy. So it'd be tough to get a trainer slot between five and eight o'clock on a weekday. Now, because people are working virtually for home, they're able to book throughout the day and they have. And so it's actually helped us expand even more. We are working with clients in all 50 states at this point. I remember the day looking at our client sheet and being like, oh, wow, we have a few people in Alaska. Interesting. <laughs> and I was like, Wait, do we have every state? And there was a period of time where we were missing South Dakota. That was the one state we and then and then the day the person in South Dakota joined was an exciting. That was the last state we had. We had Alaska Ooh. and Hawaii before we had South Dakota. <laughs> All right. They needed, to, they needed to work on their uh, their wine yeah. reps and they, their, their tissue reps. I, I talked about it one time with one of our OG clients and she's like, if you want me to move to South Dakota, I will. I was like, I would never <laughs> ask anyone to do that. <laughs> the support is real. I will yeah. say, I think that also speaking of virtual, the, the your Instagram, right? Your social, it's a place where you guys do live. It's a place where you do spread that financial literacy. I, I did check out the gram. It's got over 60 uh, or 56,000 followers. I mean, is that something that you guys ramped up with the pandemic? Have you guys kind of always leveraged social as a part of the strategy? Yeah, we've always leveraged social. It's definitely grown more in the pandemic because our content level has, has kicked in, you know, with, with COVID, with interest rates. There's been so many things that we have been ramping up content wise, but it has, it has been a a source for us, a a neighborhood for us and our clients to connect Um, Instagram and Facebook. We have, you know, strong communities there. And, um, it's, it's just, it's a part of our, our marketing. And I, what I would say too, we have the, we have, you know, a strong Instagram following, and um, and I'll compare us to like other financial institutions and, you know, that have like 2000 because nobody wants to follow their account. And we do try to make it, you know, engaging content, you know, for people to to get access to financial literacy. But I, it's a source of pride for us, the Instagram and also our client reviews. So we have over 500 plus reviews between a, a site called Trustpilot and Google reviews. And we have, you know, our average reviews 4.9. And you compare that to the financial industry, financial services industry of two, two stars. 
makes us really proud at how many people would give their financial institution a five-star review. We have a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shannon, really good stuff. Interesting stuff. I, I cannot, I know you've been around for eight years in this uh, business, but I, I, in the financial gym business, and I, uh, I, I can't wait to see where this goes from here. I'd love to see the financial services industry overall kind of adopt some of your strategies. And I'm always a big open-minded to different fee models. And this is one that's interesting to me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for helping us out and walking us through this. Yeah. Jeff is going to go pick up his uh, gym membership soon. (laughs) Start working out. I can't afford a financial advisor. I have to just continue to do what I do right now. Just put all my money under my mattress. Here's what I say, Jeff. (laughs) Our average client is paying $85 a month. And I always say, if you can't afford $85 a month, then you need to join our gym because no one should live a life (laughs) where they can't afford $85 a month. Now that's a good, that is a great marketing strategy Mm -hmm. and a great phrase right there. A little reverse psychology. I see what you did there, uh, uh, (laughs) sensei. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to go find $85 and um, yeah. buy a Mai Tai. If you can't uh, find it, Hawaii. I'll find it for you. <laughs> We're all going to dig through our, our piggy banks and, and find 85 bucks for Jeff to join the gym. There you go. <laughs> One month covered. Let's get that uh, GoFundMe going. And then, well, no, then we pay referrals to our clients for referring people. So then, you know, oh, you get $100 for every referral. So. so I could refer Nicole. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then your second month is free. And then you oh, refer man. somebody else. And then you're making money. By All right. Yeah. I'm making money. I'm, I'm in business right now. That's how I up my income. Side by, hustle. Yeah. Yep. Side hustle. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Nicole, want to wrap us up? Sure thing. Thank you so much to our guests, Mike and Shannon, for joining us on this episode of the Investment News Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to fill in for my colleague, Bruce Kelly, and join my mentor, Jeff Benjamin, on the pod. Be sure to check out our episodes. They drop weekly. You can catch us on investmentnews.com, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. So keep tuning in, guys. And thanks again. 